Yarn. Yarn 15. Black Business. When you think of a pirate, what do you picture in your mind? Something like this. Silver's the name. Long John Silver, they calls me. At your service, sir. Or do you think of something a bit more modern? Everything okay? I don't like the look of that. They're coming in fast. Men in speedboats with machetes. Alabama. We are an unarmed freighter. We have two skiffs approaching with armed intruders. Potential piracy situation. You probably don't think of pirates as wearing expensive suits and working in high-rise office buildings. In the 90s, the biggest pirates of Southeast Asia were impossible to tell apart from high-powered businessmen. It was hard to tell them apart because they could be both. This is the true story of one of the most sophisticated pirate syndicates in Southeast Asia. The syndicate was run like a business. They had assets, employees, customers, lawyers and accountants, but they operated outside the law, in secret, with little regard for human life. Locals called their activity Black business. The dialogue you'll hear was taken from actual accounts and interviews. Part one, black business. 5 a.m. December 2nd, 1998. The Hotel 88, Batam Island, Indonesia. An armed team of Indonesian special forces burst into the room of Mr. Wong and surround his bed. Mr. Wong's current girlfriend and former favorite call girl, Ayo, sits up and screams in the bed beside him. Mr. Wong slowly rolls over and squints at the gun barrels pointed at his head. He tells Ayo to calm down. The screaming isn't helping his hangover. Mr. Wong pulls up his trousers over his bulging gut while lying on his back. Tie his wrists and let's get him out of here, the soldier shouts from behind the line of armed men. Io later recounts. I didn't know what was going on, but Mr. Wong didn't seem all that surprised. You can't do this, I shouted at them. What has he done? He's just a businessman. One of the men says, it's black business, honey. He's not who he says he is. They lead Mr. Wong out in cuffs, leaving Io alone in the hotel room. Black business is what it's called in these parts, but you probably know it by another name, piracy. And they say Mr. Wong is the modern day Blackbeard. To understand how piracy works in Southeast Asia, first, you'll need a quick geography lesson. Between the mid nineties and early two thousands, two of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, the Malaccan Strait and the Singapore Strait also recorded the highest levels of piracy in the Seven Seas. The Malaccan Strait 
is a thin wedge-shaped stretch of sea between the western coast of Malaysia and Indonesia. It slopes east diagonally and tapers into the even narrower Singapore Strait. The Singapore Strait is only 19 kilometers across and cuts between the city-state of Singapore and two of the larger Indonesian islands, Bulan and Batam. From here, the ocean quickly opens up again into the vast South China Sea. This hotly contested body of water has an area of 3.5 million square kilometers and touches hundreds of ports in Indonesia, Vietnam, Brunei, the Philippines and China. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, a pirate says. Ships are ambushed and then hijacked in the narrow straits, then piloted out to the open waters of the South China Sea, where they just disappear. Sometimes their crews disappear too, but more often than not, they're recovered near the coast after spending a day or two floating aimlessly in their life rafts. It's nothing like how piracy works off the coast of East Africa. The pirate continues. Like in that movie Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks. That's small change. No, we're a lot more organised. We're a business. We have investors, buyers, high-tech equipment, and we make a lot more money. There's another important factor that contributed to piracy in the 90s. The economy. The island of Batam is less than an hour's ferry ride from Singapore. Batam's casinos, brothels, and proximity to Singapore make it a hotspot for wealthy sex tourists and businessmen. The Asian financial crisis of 1997 hit Indonesia hard and caused a spike in internal migration towards the growing city. The promise of jobs paid in the more stable Singapore dollar as a hotel worker, a kitchen staffer, or a shipyard docker attracted many young men and women to the city from rural Indonesia. By 1998, Batam was a city awash with unemployed migrants desperately seeking labour and heavily indebted businessmen looking for quick ways to cover their losses from the financial crisis. So Batam quickly becomes one of the key networking and recruiting hubs for piracy. That's the end of the geography and economics lesson. In 1998, Mr Wong's syndicate is just one of over a dozen known criminal gangs working the straits. Wong is what you call a fixer. It's his job to spot targets, pull in investors, employ a pirate crew leader, brief a document forger, find a buyer, and once the job is done, make sure everyone gets paid, including his boss, the head of the whole syndicate. It's a stressful job. Ayo doesn't believe that her boyfriend, 20 years her senior, could possibly be a pirate. He just wouldn't be able for all that excitement. He's too boring. He works in shipping, yes, but he's always broke. If he was high up in a big pirate syndicate, wouldn't he have lots of money? I had to loan him $50 last week. The staff at two of his favourite hotels in Batam agree with Ayo. Mr Wong stays here a lot. The concierge from Hotel ACA. He uses a few different passports with different names and nationalities each time. That's why we just call him Mr Wong. I don't know what his real name is or where he's from. He's not much of a tipper though and he makes sure he empties his bathroom of all the soap, shampoo and toilet roll when he checks out. Mr Wong's luck has finally worn out. 
His syndicate is thought to be responsible for dozens of reported and even more unreported hijackings in the Singapore Strait. His most recent hijacking ended in failure. The ship in question is the MT Petro Ranger. MT stands for Mototanker. It's owned and operated by Petro Ships. Months of meticulous design and detailed craftsmanship followed, culminating in 1998 when this ship left its launching dock as Singapore's first double hull ship and the best vessel. On April 17, 1998, the tanker was to set off from the port of Singapore, bound for Vietnam with $1.5 million worth of diesel oil and jet fuel. The Petro Ranger is almost entirely crewed by men from Southeast Asia, but she is to be captained by Ken Blythe, a 57-year-old veteran mariner originally from Scotland, but now based in Australia. Blythe gets to Singapore on the 16th of April, the day before the Petro Ranger is scheduled to leave. There, he meets his officers for the first time. Most ship's officers will only fly in a day or two before the ship's scheduled to cast off. Captain Blythe. You might have worked with one or two of the lads before, but sometimes you don't know them at all. All you have to go on are their resumes. It might even be your first time on that particular ship. So you've only got a day or two to get up to speed. First thing I always check is the kitchen. If that's not fully stocked, or if the chef doesn't seem competent, that's sure to cause problems. Captain Blythe was eager to get his cargo to Vietnam as quickly as possible. He had a flight booked from Ho Chi Minh back to Australia four days later, just in time for his 25th wedding anniversary. The wife said she'd kill me if I was late for that. The morning of April 17th, Bly and his crew had the Petro Ranger ship shape and ready to go, but their departure time kept getting delayed by the port authorities. We'd hear on the radio that either our tugboat or guide pilot weren't ready, and we'd have to wait another hour. That happened four or five times. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, something fishy's going on here. It was gonna be dark before we got out through the Singapore Strait. I didn't want to be sailing through those waters at night. Captain Blythe's suspicions were correct. His departure was being delayed on purpose because it's easier for pirates to board ships under the cover of darkness. Part 2 The Informant Two weeks before the MT Petro Ranger's scheduled departure, Mr. Wong walks into a karaoke bar somewhere in Singapore. He orders a drink at the bar, making sure to ask for a receipt. He sits quietly intermittently glancing up at the horse racing on the TV above the bar and over to his right where a drunk businessman screeches a karaoke hit into the microphone. Wong doesn't even acknowledge the man sitting to his left, but he knows exactly who he is. The bar hostess pointed him out when he entered. Mr. Wong rewarded the tip-off by slipping her $50. That's a small price to pay for a chance to talk to a drunk Petro ship's employee. After a couple of minutes, the man starts making conversation with Mr. Wong. Two drinks later, 
after listening to the man's sob story about how little he's paid and how far away he is from his family, Mr. Wong makes him a proposition. How would he like to make some fast cash? All he has to do is to provide some inside intel about what petroship tankers are scheduled to pass through the Singapore Strait in the next few days. According to interviews with other fixers, this intel gathering technique works about 50% of the time. Known harbour employees can be propositioned on a weekly basis. Other times dock workers actively seek out fixers themselves if they hear of a particularly bountiful cargo scheduled to travel through the strait. Inside information is an integral part of black business. Pirate syndicates are known to pull from vast networks of informants. One of Mr. Wong's contemporaries, known as Captain Chengo, worked from his headquarters in the penthouse of a high-rise hotel in the Philippines. His network of informants was so vast, he could guarantee his team could hijack any tanker the customer chose. He called his penthouse window his display cabinet because it looked down on all the ships in the harbour. His customers would visit him and just point out the ship they wanted in the window. The ship will be hijacked for the standard fee of 300,000 US dollars. Mr. Wong's style is a bit more low-key. His headquarters is aboard his own tanker, the MT Pulau Mass. The ship could usually be found anchored somewhere in the Singapore Strait. Wong directs operations from there, so he can make a quick exit out to international waters if he needs to. Part 3 The Forger Two weeks after sharing some drinks with the Petro ship's employee, Mr. Wong gets a phone call. Jackpot! Just like that, Mr. Wong knows the Petro Ranger's exact schedule. He knows her cargo, and he has profiles of all the officers and crew. He knows all this before the ship's own captain does. The Petro Ranger is scheduled to depart in less than a week. Mr. Wong doesn't have much time to assemble his team and find a buyer, but first things first, he needs a document forger. Why does he need a forger? There are a lot of ways to pirate a ship. Simply board the vessel and steal from the ship's safe and her crew, or kidnap the crew and ask for a ransom. But Mr. Wong's gang does none of these. His gang specialises in cargo and tanker theft by creating phantom ships. To pull this off, you need an expert forger. There are about four working in Southeast Asia. Wong's man is based in Hong Kong. He's worked with him for years, but they've never actually met in person. Mr. Wong gives him a call on his dedicated phone. He gives the forger the specifications of the ship he intends to steal. For a standard fee, the forger sends Mr. Wong back a set of pristine legal documents for a ship with the exact same specifications, except with a different name, a different flag registration, and of course a different owner. The Petro Ranger is to become the Wilby, a phantom ship. Part 4 The Boarding Team Herman, a 49-year-old heavyset man, sits in his usual spot 
outside his favourite cafe in Batam's port district of Nagoya. He leans back in his plastic chair as he smokes his third cigarette in an hour and drinks his second coffee of the morning. The street is full of other men doing exactly the same. Some sit alone, others congregate under umbrellas around cheap plastic tables. Herman's spot is close to the mosque, so he can quickly go and come back whenever he hears the call to prayer. No one dares taking his seat while he's away. Scooters whiz by or park up beside the cafes. All of these men are looking for jobs. This is their employment office. Herman is a veteran able-bodied seaman, but times are tough these days. He'll take anything he can get, legal or not so legal. He doesn't really see the difference. Brother, look over there. An anonymous able seaman interviewed in Nagoya. You see that? He points across the harbour. What is that? That is money. Singapore is very rich. You see Batam? We are not like other countries. We are not like Singapore or America. We need to eat too. Herman gets a message on his beeper. It's Mr. Wong. They've worked together a few times before. Herman is an experienced boarding team leader. Herman rushes over to the bank of payphones near his spot and makes a call. Mr. Wong tells him he has a couple of days to assemble a team capable of boarding the Petro Ranger. Herman lights another cigarette to calm himself down. Maybe he's bitten off more than he can chew this time. The Petro Ranger is a state-of-the-art tanker. Herman's not worried about overpowering the crew or piloting the ship to a new location. He's worried when he hears Mr. Wong's plan involves his team performing multiple STS transfers. What's an STS transfer? STS, or ship-to-ship -ship transfer, involves the movement of product from one larger tanker to another smaller ship called a lightering vessel. What makes this process even more difficult is that pirates like to do it at night and while the two ships are still moving out on the open sea. The pilots of the lightering ship need to be highly skilled to come up alongside a much larger tanker. They need to calculate the correct speed and angle of approach and predict any movement from the lead tanker. The men performing the transfer require a high level of technical proficiency. Breaking off after the completion of an STS without spilling product and leaving a telltale slick in the ship's wake also requires tremendous skill. The men Herman usually draws his boarding teams from have a different set of skills. They can ride speedboats, yield AK-47s and machetes, and crew large tankers, but they're not engineers or expert lightering vessel pilots. Herman will have to cast his net a little farther than the streets of Nagoya. But there's no need to bother Mr. Wong with this detail. In fact, Mr. Wong wouldn't want to hear about it. After all, recruiting the boarding crew is part of Herman's job. Meanwhile, Mr. Wong is busy trying to find buyers for the Petro Ranger and its contents. Mr. Wong has buyers in China for the ship itself and two other buyers for different consignments of her diesel. 
but he's finding it difficult to get any takers for her jet fuel. Petrol and diesel are easy to sell on the black market or mix into the grey market, but jet fuel is much more specialised and harder to shift. If Mr Wong can't find a buyer, he'll have to bunker the jet fuel on an island somewhere in the South China Sea. But holding on to several tons of evidence from a hijacking isn't the smartest way to do business, so he'd rather find a buyer before the petrol ranger gets to the Chinese mainland. Part 5 Press Ganged It's the night before the petrol ranger's scheduled departure. Herman still doesn't have the expert crew members he needs. He could force a few members of the actual crew of the Petro Ranger to perform the tasks, but that's risky. You only need one crew member to go rogue and mess up the whole operation. Herman has another idea. He'll just persuade some able-bodied seamen to join his boarding crew. Herman and his gang cross the strait to Singapore. They'll make two stops during the night. Their first is to an apartment complex near the harbour. They wait in the darkened alley across from the building. The man they're waiting for finally approaches the apartment block. He looks a little drunk. Perfect. Herman's gang grab the man and drag him into the alley. They quickly gag him and hold him down. They've been watching this man for a few days. They know his job credentials. Their proposition is simple. Go with them now and he'll return in a week with a bag full of cash. If he refuses to join them, Herman's team will go up to his apartment this instant and kill the man's wife and two young daughters. If the man tries anything funny during the hijacking, one phone call and his family will be killed immediately. Herman gets the answer he wants. Welcome to the crew, he says. Herman's crew make one other similar visit over the course of the night. The second able-bodied seaman agrees to join them too. Some aspects of piracy never change. Press ganging is as old as maritime history itself. And it still works. Part 6 the hijacking. It's late into the evening by the time Ken Blythe departs from Singapore Harbour. At 9.30pm, the Petro Ranger sails past a Horseburg lighthouse. The lighthouse has stood on a rock at the mouth of the Singapore Strait for over 140 years. It's named after another Scotsman, Captain James Horsburgh, who charted these waters back in the 1800s. Passing the Horsburg Lighthouse signals the Petro Ranger's departure from Singapore-controlled sea and her entry into international waters. Captain Blythe switches on the autopilot and goes down to his cabin for a few hours sleep. He leaves one crew member to man the bridge, while the officer of the watch is stationed in the radio room. Herman and his men are aboard a small open-topped fiberglass speedboat. They are about a mile behind the Petro Ranger. As long as they stay directly behind the Petro Ranger, her wake will cloak their small ship from radar. Catch
Catching up to the Petro Ranger is not easy. The tanker's wake creates a deluge of waves that the small boat must fight against. The boat's engines and her crew's stomachs are pushed to their limit. The water to the left and right of the pirate boarding ship is dead calm. It will be so tempting to step out of the Petro Ranger's shadow and into the smooth water, but that would mean instant detection. The closer the boarding craft gets, the rougher the waves become. The pilot signals to his passengers that he's as close as they're going to get. The tanker's stern towers in front of them like a massive moving cliff face. Petro Ranger's officer of the watch is busy trying to tune to his favourite Indian radio station. If he was concentrating on the radar screen, he might have noticed a faint signal flashing sporadically behind the ship. He might have been curious enough to go out on deck and shine a spotlight down from the stern. But he wasn't looking at the radar screen. He was too busy tuning his radio. The pirates throw grappling hooks up as high as they can. Once they're fixed to the railings above, they raise up two long bamboo ladders and rest them against the side of the moving structure. The ladders sway away and back towards the stern of the Petro Ranger. The speedboat pilot tries to compensate. The 12 men climb the ladders two at a time until they're all aboard the tanker. The speedboat cuts its engines and quickly drifts back into the darkness. Falls to the ground unconscious. Captain Blythe's quarters are directly under the bridge. The loud thud on the ceiling wakes him up. Blythe throws his dressing gown on and opens the door. A gun is pointed in his face. The pirates wanted me to go around with the master key and round up the crew. The pirates round up all the crew and dump them in the captain's day room, except for the captain himself. They lead Blythe up to the bridge where Herman is there waiting for him. They didn't understand how to turn off the automatic pilot. They were baffled by touchscreen computerized piloting. So they wanted me to do it for them. After I gave them a crash course in piloting a tanker, they tied me up in the captain's high chair. For the next few hours, all I could do was watch as they set the Petro Ranger on a new course. Down in the captain's day room, the pirates throw mattresses on the floor and tell the Petro Ranger's crew to settle in for the next few days. Captain Blythe is thrown in with them after his knowledge is no longer needed on the bridge. Herman and his gang don't want Blythe knowing where they're going. The Petro Ranger is somewhere in the middle of the South China Sea. The pirates have scheduled a rendezvous with a transfer tanker or lightering ship the next day. The smaller tanker will come up beside the Petro Ranger 
hoses will be attached and fuel will be pumped from the petrol ranger over to her temporary neighbour. If any passing ships were to see this meeting in progress, they wouldn't bat an eyelid. Ship-to-ship -ship transfers happen all the time. How was anyone to know that this is actually a hijacking? But surely by now someone has reported the petrol ranger missing. Her crew hasn't been in contact with anyone in days, and when she fails to deliver her cargo in Vietnam, well then won't everyone be on the lookout for a massive tanker with the name Petro Ranger emblazoned on her stern? Mr. Wong has already thought of this. He had his best forger produce documents for a ship of the exact same specifications as the Petro Ranger, and he gave those documents to Herman. Herman is now the registered captain of a tanker called the Wilby, the Petro Ranger's new name. All that needs to be done now is to paint out her old name on the stern and replace it with the new name. The same has to be done on all the lifeboats, life jackets and ring boys. And any documents with the name Petro Ranger have to be thrown overboard. By the time the lightering ship arrives, all remnants of the Petro Ranger have been removed. Except, of course, for her crew. They are all still cooked up together in a room with no windows or toilet facilities. After three days at sea, the conditions have become unbearable. A bootleg copy of the movie Titanic, the only non-pornographic entertainment on board, plays over and over on the TV in the corner. It's torture. Suddenly the door swings open. The pirates point to Captain Blythe and signal him to follow them. They push him into his old quarters and slam the door behind him. Part 7 Ship to Ship Transfer Herman is sitting behind the captain's desk. He tells me to have a seat, Blythe recalls, in my own bloody office. I've been cooked up for the guts of a week with barely any food or water. I'm a wreck. Then he offers me a fag. I took it. Herman is quite cordial. He apologises for how some of his more inexperienced men initially treated Blythe's crew. He says that this is just business and as soon as this deal is done, they can all go back to their regular lives. The impression I got, Blythe says, was that having achieved what he had done, the Petro Ranger was the most modern tanker he'd swiped. He would have loved to have phoned up CNN and say, look what I've pulled off and I was the only one around who could possibly appreciate what he had done. Herman may have been putting on a brave face, but he was in over his head. Even with the help of the two engineers he'd press-ganged, his crew were having trouble operating the tanker's complicated ship-to-ship -ship transfer system. He needed the captain's help. One lightering vessel was currently pulled up alongside the Petro Ranger, with another one on its way. But Herman's men hadn't managed to transfer a single drop of fuel yet. Blythe and his chief officer agreed to help. If they don't, Herman assured Blythe he'd start executing crew members until the captain changed his mind. When Blythe gets out on deck, he notices the ship's new name. He looks out overboard, but all he can see is blue ocean. I had no way of telling where we were. There were no landmarks of any kind. We got started offloading the fuel. Myself and the first mate 
knew that as soon as we completed the job, the pirates no longer had any use for keeping us alive. So we took our time. We never said as much to each other, but we both knew. The Petro Ranger was now a few days late for its delivery date in Ho Chi Minh City, and she hadn't made radio contact of any kind in over a week. Surely the Petro ship's company had reported its vessel missing by now, but they hadn't. It takes several phone calls from Captain Blythe's wife until Petro ships acknowledge that they had lost contact with their ship. And it takes her threatening to go to the press until they finally register the Petro Ranger as missing. You see, shipping companies don't like to advertise if one of their tankers has been hijacked. If they lose contact with one of their vessels, the strategy is usually to wait. They wait a few days or a week and either the crew will be found in a life raft by a fishing boat or the shipping company will be contacted by an intermediary working on behalf of the pirates. This intermediary, usually a lawyer, will negotiate a ransom with the shipping company for the safe return of the ship, her cargo or her crew. It's up to the shipping company if they want to get their insurer involved. Most shipping companies would rather not get their insurers involved because their premiums are so high anyway and they don't want it to be known that their ships have fallen victim to piracy. But in the case of the Petro Ranger, nobody contacts Petro ships because there's nothing to negotiate. Mr. Wong doesn't do ransoms. That's too messy. After Captain Blythe and his Bangladeshi chief officer finished transferring the first load of fuel, they're sent back down with the rest of the crew. The days roll by. Blythe and his chief officer are forced to help transfer another load. I was thinking, how many more times were they going to get us to do this? And what are they going to do with us when we're done? Thirteen days into the hijacking, Herman is wondering where the third lightering tanker is. It should have arrived by now. He orders his number two to get on the radio and see where they are. But Herman's number two makes a big mistake. Part 8 Big Mistake With the third tanker sailing around unable to find the will-be, out of desperation, the pirate sends out a call for the tanker on a broader frequency, the public VHF frequency. The Chinese authorities hear it. Suspecting a smuggling operation, the Chinese hold back and wait to see what happens next. When the third lightering tanker arrives, the Chinese speed in. They stop both ships at sea and escort them to Haiko Harbor on the island of Hainan in southern China. Captain Blythe, still locked down below, knows something is afoot. The pirates suddenly became a lot more jumpy. They were whispering to each other and running around like headless chickens. Something had them spooked. While the pirate crew pilots their tanker, the Wilby, to the Chinese mainland, Herman calls Mr. Wong on the ship's satellite phone. Mr. Wong answers from his pirate headquarters. A tanker anchored back in the Singapore Strait called the Pular Mass. Wong has already sold a first shipment of fuel taken from the Petro Ranger and delivered it to a port in mainland China. He thinks Herman is calling asking if his cut has been deposited in his account. So Mr. Wong is in for a shock. Herman explains the situation. Mr. Wong tries to stay calm. Have the Chinese boarded the ship yet? Mr. Wong asks. 
Not yet, says Herman. Should I dispose of the crew? Not yet. Let's see if we can pay off the Chinese first. Mr. Wong hangs up on Herman and calls his lawyer. It's late, but he's still in his office at a prominent law firm in downtown Hong Kong. I need you to take care of some Chinese officials, Mr. Wong says. The lawyer grabs a pen and pad. What port? Haiko. Hmm. Are they PLA or PSB? PSB, I think. Shouldn't be a problem. Let me handle it. There are two different Chinese agencies that patrol this region. The PLA, which stands for the People's Liberation Army, and the PSB, the Public Security Bureau. The agencies differ from each other in a few ways. The PLA can be distinguished by their green uniforms. They are the armed forces of the People's Republic of China. The PLA can be deployed anywhere in the Chinese state. The PSB wear black peaked caps and overalls. They are essentially local police. Each regional unit is semi-autonomous and more beholden to provincial powers rather than the state. The main difference between them that concerns Mr. Wong and his lawyer is that the PSB are much more tolerant of piracy and are a lot more open to bribery. This isn't to say that the PLA can't be bought either. It's just a little more straightforward with the PSB. As Herman pilots the tanker formerly known as the Petra Ranger towards the harbour, a PLA Navy vessel blocks her path and boards her. The PLA has just scooped the PSB. As far as they're concerned, they have jurisdiction now. They want to claim the credit for foiling a smuggling operation. Now Herman is regretting not getting rid of the Petra Ranger's original crew when he had the chance. The PLA take control of the tanker. They post men on each deck and pilot the ship into Heiko Harbour in full view of the waiting PSB. Part 9 Escape In all the confusion, Captain Blythe and his crew are left unguarded below deck. Blythe doesn't know what's going on upstairs, but he realises this might be his only chance to break free. He asks one of his crew members to sneak out ahead of him, hide and keep watch for pirates. What was to happen was that Sani would check where the pirates were, Captain Blythe, and when the stairwell to the bridge was clear, I would hear three bangs on the door. Then I'd open it from the inside and we'd take off. Sani and I ran barefoot to minimise noise. We bolted up to the main deck and saw Chinese soldiers everywhere. I saw one keeping a watch up on the Monkey Island, so I headed up there. The so-called Monkey Island is the highest lookout point of a ship. Blythe thought it was best to approach a soldier that was on his own, away from the pirates and his other fellow soldiers. The soldier looks shocked at Blythe's appearance. The captain explains the true identity of the ship and its hijacking to the official. So the Chinese army came to the rescue. The ordeal was finally over. The captain and his crew could return home and the pirates would face charges. Well, no, it wasn't that simple. Part 10 Interrogation The 
Wilby, a.k.a. the Petro Ranger, is impounded in Heiko Harbour. Her actual crew and the pirates are forced to stay on board while the two agencies investigate. All the men are interrogated, first by the PSB and then again by the PLA. Mr Wong's lawyer manages to work his magic on the PSB, but the PLA are proving a harder sell. The PSB want to charge them all with smuggling. The punishment, a fine and the repossession of the tanker. They say there is no evidence of a hijacking. The PSB don't allow Blythe to contact his employer to confirm his identity. If he just admits to smuggling, then everyone would be free to leave, including the pirates. Unsurprisingly, Herman admits to smuggling. He even produces a crew manifest that lists the names of his boarding team as part of the crew. It lists Herman as the captain and Blythe as his first mate. It's Herman's word against Blythe's. Captain Herman even arranges for the so-called fine to be paid directly to the lead PSB official. I kept telling them that they were the pirates and we were the actual crew but they didn't want to hear it. For the next 30 days, the PSB and the PLA interrogate and reinterrogate Blythe. It was like good cop, bad cop. The PSB threatened me. They just wanted me to sign a statement. I had no idea what it said, that I was a smuggler, I suppose. The PLA lads believed me, but they seemed to be just playing for time. They must not have been happy with their bribes. They were holding out for more. When it wasn't coming, they finally let me contact Petro Ships. But even with confirmation from Petro Ships, the PSB are not willing to release the ship or her crew. Blythe is getting paranoid. Were Petro Ships themselves involved in some way? What on earth would we have to gain? Tan Cheng Meng, executive director of Petro Ships. I flew over to Heiko myself as soon as I heard from the captain. The Chinese finally released the tanker and her crew only after I threatened an international diplomatic incident. What the Chinese did next was totally irresponsible and deplorable. They let the pirates go, despite overwhelming evidence. Tan and Petro ships never pursued a case. They said they were just happy to get the crew and the ship back. The last Blythe saw of the pirates was when the Chinese escorted them down the Petro ship's ramp and onto the harbour, presumably so they could board their lightering vessel and sail away from China. Blythe caught sight of Herman briefly. He hadn't seen him the whole time they were detained. Herman looked the worse for wear. No known sightings of Herman were ever reported again, but Captain Blythe's crew have seen members of Herman's boarding team at work on other ships in the harbour of Singapore and Batam. Part 11 Blackmail Mr Wong took the hit. He didn't get the cell on the phantom ship, the Wilby. He wouldn't be using Herman again for any future business, but it wasn't hard to find someone else to fill his position. So Mr Wong went back to business as usual. For six months anyway. In November 1998, his pirate headquarters 
soldiers at home, Pulau Mas was raided by a small team of Indonesian special forces. Wong said they had no warrant, no arrest order, and no right to board his ship. The officers uncovered a treasure trove of pirate paraphernalia. They found 15 pairs of handcuffs, 14 balaclavas, 15 automatic weapons, 3 knives, immigration and ship stamps, false ship's documents, ship paint, and various national flags. But they didn't find what they were really looking for. Money. Mr. Wong said they were furious and demanded 50,000 Singapore dollars. He said he didn't have that kind of money. Then they confiscated his ship and gave Wong a week to come up with the money. Special forces tracked Wong down two weeks later in room 252 of the Hotel 88 in Batam. There was no mention of money this time. They just arrested him. Mr. Wong was interrogated by the Indonesian army. Wong said his real name was Chu Cheng Kat and that he's a Singaporean citizen. He had a passport to prove it. In a brief interview with the Nation newspaper just before his trial, Mr. Wong still denied the charges. He maintained that he was a legitimate businessman. According to his passport, he was 56. He said he had a wife who worked at a denim factory in Singapore and that his two children were studying in Australia. He said he hoped his wife and children did not know about his arrest. As the trial progressed, the Singapore government issued a statement saying that the real Chu Chen Kiat is actually another Singaporean who had lost his passport a few years ago. They could not confirm whether Wong is from Singapore or not. Mr. Wong refused to provide another name. To this day, his real name and nationality remains a mystery. The business partners of Mr. Wong were even more mysterious. According to the International Maritime Bureau, the international network of Mr. Wong extended right up to the Philippines, Malaysia, as well as Taipei and Taiwan. The whole syndicate was thought to be led by Ling Sao Pen, a Hong Kong businessman. But Wong kept his mouth shut. He didn't provide any names of his partners or customers and insisted on his innocence. When asked about the handcuffs and face masks found on the Pulau Mas, Mr. Wong's defense attorney said it was normal for a captain to possess such equipment. A captain on board his ship also functions as a policeman, a prosecutor and a judge, he said, adding that face masks are needed to work in the cold of night. On the 26th of August, 1999, Mr. Wong was sentenced to six years of solitary confinement. He was convicted of having supervised the disappearance of several vessels, including the Atlanta, the Suki, the Plagia and the Petro Ranger. In 2002, after an attempt to escape and another attempt to set fire to his prison cell, Mr. Wong was transferred to an old reformatory prison in Sumatra. The conditions of detention were severe and the man, nearing 60, was reported to be quite ill. That's the last anyone heard of Mr. Wong. Captain Blythe never captained another ship again. He retired after the Petro Ranger incident. I was done with it, Blythe says.
I was getting too old for that shit. To this day, I can't watch a second of that film Titanic without retching. It's funny the things that bring it all back. We were lucky the Chinese did intervene. I'm certain that otherwise, me and the whole crew would have ended up at the bottom of the South China Sea. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com Written and narrated by John Roach Original music by Drembot For a full bibliography, see the episode description.